It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters or grab Sky Broadband Ultrafast for lightning fast speeds. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speed. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September. What is bravery? Is it the ability to always take on a challenge? Or is it the ability to face up to a challenge even though all your inner workings are screaming at you to run? Could you only be brave for you? What if your bravery required you to put your life in danger in order to save others? Could you be brave enough to do this? It is the life of a man from y'all which answers these questions for us. This is his story. In the East Cork town of Yall in 1865, a child was born. His name was John Foley. John grew up on Tallow Street in the old Venetian-style town. Venetian because, at the time, the best way to travel from one side of the town to the other, and under Yall's famous clock tower, was by rowing boat, as the sea and the town shared the same paths. It was here he was guided by the advice and wisdom of his parents, Nicholas and Nora. It was under their watch that they ensured John could read and write in both English and Irish. Given the way the world was going, they felt that this would be vital for him to have an ability to earn a living. The town John was born into was one recovering from the horrors of the famine, but unlike the rest of the island, there was a slight fragrance of hope throughout the town. The shipyards of Yall were starting to prosper, as Yall was becoming one of the most important trading centres on the British Isles. The work in the shipyards was too appealing for the young men of the town, who had no prospects of inheriting the family farm. When John decided to join them, he joined over 2,500 other Yall men in work in the shipyards. Initially, he worked loading and unloading the pallets from the great ships. After his day's work, he would sit with the sailors in the local taverns as they told all the young boys of their adventures at sea, the lands they had seen and the great creatures of the ocean. Unable to allow his imagination fulfil his need to share their experiences, John decided the next step in his career would be to join them at sea. It wasn't difficult work to get when he sought it. Yall at this point was dwarfing Kinsale, Cove and Cork City as a trading point. To begin with, he started by working off fishing ships seeking salmon. Each morning, a felt of 33 ships would head out from the Blackwater Bay between Cork and Waterford, and each evening they would bring back the rewards to the town. The small town was booming. Unfortunately, however, this didn't last. 
As ships became bigger, the natural port of Yall became less easy to manoeuvre. It was eventually shut off to the world when a passenger ferry coming into the town ran land near the lighthouse and collapsed onto its side, drowning 14 of the passengers on board. It was at this point that John was forced to leave his home in order to seek a living. His first port of call was Kinsale. Having friends down there who he had met in the shipyards of Yall, he had no problem finding work. Whilst here, he met a woman named Mary Murphy. They soon married. Life was good for a while for the two. After some time, however, John and the other Catholics working in the Irish shipyards found work hard to come by. The wealthy Protestants, who had descended from the plantations of the British Empire, began refusing to dock in the yards where Catholics ran operations. John and a few friends found that this was a near-exclusive Irish problem, and if they were working on the shipyards in England, they would be allowed to work for as long as their bodies would let them. They got the notion to leave Kinsale and move to the great shipyards in Southampton. Effectively, Southampton was the shipping empire of the world at the time. John worked on a series of ships, showing that he was not only a very capable sailor, but he could also read and write to a level above the others of the shipyards. This led him to easily find promotions in ships, and eventually he worked his way up to be a quartermaster and a storekeeper. The ship owners began to become quite familiar with John. He showed he was a very capable worker, he never complained and he never refused to work. As a result of this, in 1912 John received a letter stating that he was being requested to be the storekeeper for the Belfast-based shipbuilders Harland and Wolfe. The letter told him that he would be paid handsomely as this was going to be a long voyage to America. It was also the maiden voyage for one of their most impressive boats. It said that, given the importance of the journey, they could only have staff they could trust, and his reputation went before him. Incredibly flattered, John spoke with Mary about the opportunity. Initially, she was worried at the prospect of being left in Southampton alone with their now young family but she understood that the pay he would receive for the journey would make the move to Southampton incredibly worthwhile. In early April 1912, John received word that the ship had successfully launched in Belfast and was on its way to Southampton to collect the maiden voyage passengers. On the morning he was to board, John had breakfast with his family and he kissed his wife goodbye for what they thought would be a few months apart. He walked towards Southampton's shipyards with a whistle and a skip, thinking of how comfortable his family would be when he returned. Perhaps they might try to have a small holiday in Cornwall, he thought to himself, or perhaps go to London for a day. As he walked to the yard, he was passed by young children running excitedly towards the port, who had read in the paper of this great ship coming to their city. Southampton itself was bursting with giddiness, 
as the ship became visible in the distance and people lined up to either check in early or just to see it. John continued to take his time embracing it all. As he got to the yard, he went to where the workers would enter the ship and he waited with the others, having a drink to relax his nerves. From the workers' pub, they began to feel the rumble of the ship coming in. It shook the porter in his glass. They all walked out to see it for themselves. John had never seen a ship as big or as powerful. He was a ship for gods. As he stood under the great ship pulling in, he read the name of the boat that would liberate his family from poverty. RMS Titanic. As John stepped on, he had the same experience of many of the other passengers. He was wowed by what he saw. The ship seemed like it was from the future. It had the world's first heated pool on it, which John could enjoy during his downtime, as well as tennis courts and a small hospital. The Titanic, in all her finery, drew millionaires and engineers from all over Britain and the world to cast off from Southampton. The elegance and comfort astonished all classes. The wealthy dined and gathered in opulent surroundings, whilst the economy classes shared one bathtub between 700 people in steerage. To all aboard the Titanic, the ship was an emblem of dreams and fortune abound. An undertaking so magnificent and majestic it would be known as one of the most spectacular engineering achievements in history. John's start to life on the Titanic went well. He ran his department like a well-oiled machine. In the evenings, he and his staff would share a drink and share stories. He became known as the guy you wanted to work for on board. He was living up to his reputation and his own managers were pleased they'd gone to the effort of seeking him out. The journey began as any other John had been on. Nothing strange, nothing different. He enjoyed seeing the stars so brightly under the night skies, it reminded him of the quiet evenings in Yall. On April 14th, as John clocked off for the evening, he went to the staff area to have a quick drink and perhaps go up on deck for some fresh air. As he went up, messages began to come into the ship warning of icebergs floating in their path. This wouldn't have been entirely unusual out in the middle of the Atlantic, but the captain decided to adjust the route slightly to avoid them just in case. The messages coming in however were not all going to the captain. He did not know exactly what they were facing into. The messages were not all coming through to him as they were using a brand new wireless station and Marconi communication system which was being used by wealthier passengers to send messages home. Whilst doing so they would block the messages coming in. At 11.40 that night 
As John finished his tea in his room before nodding off, he was jolted to life by a thundering boom coming from the side of the ship. He quickly got dressed and ran to the captain to see what might have happened. He was told that they had struck an iceberg, but it wasn't anything to worry about. The ship was unsinkable and it was simply just a thud and a scrape, nothing to worry about really. As he was in there, a friend of John's named Samuel Hemming, who was a lamp trimmer on the ship, told the captain of a hissing noise he had heard from the lower front of the ship whilst on his rounds. We must have burst a pipe in the hit, the captain told him. Go down, check it out and report it back. I'll have the lads wake up maintenance. To get down to where the hissing was coming from, Sam would have to go through John's storeroom. Out of pure curiosity, John decided to go down with him for a look. They found nothing out of the ordinary. Everything seemed fine. There were no issues with the tank top and the ship seemed sound. They sent this message back to the captain. As Sam turned to head back up, John spotted something towards the back of the room. He noticed a large damp spot on the internal wall. He placed his hand against it and it was incredibly cold. What's behind this wall? he asked Sam. Nothing, just the belly of the ship, Sam responded. Run Sam, run very very fast, John shouted to him as he bounded away from the wall and back up through the storeroom. The first five air chambers of the ship were now filled with Atlantic seawater, waiting to burst into the living chambers at any moment. Sam and John quickly got the message to the captain who ran the emergency bell. John and Sam had been trained that should lifeboats be required, Lifeboat 4 would be where they would be stationed. They were to ensure that women and children got on the boat first. As John ran to the lifeboat, he passed a gate locked with zombie-like hands of the poor pouring through. The policy at the time was for the poor to be kept at the bottom of the ship and the gates would be locked to keep them there in fear that the rich would have to see them during the journey. The only daylight they would enjoy would be what they could see coming through their windows should they have them. John knew that this wasn't the only issue they had. Lifeboats were only assigned to the rich as it was included in their ticket price. The poor had not forked up enough to be entitled to a seat on a lifeboat should one be needed. Most of the poor hands John saw reaching through had boarded in Cove. They were his countrymen, women and children. All Irish, all doomed. He ran and got an axe and smashed open as many locks as he could, freeing as many as possible before telling others where the axes were and to do the same so that more could have a chance of living. He had a duty to do and continued up to lifeboat four. When he got there, Sam and John loaded as many as they could onto the boat. 
Initially, things were relatively calm. The rich women and children climbed into their lifeboats and were lowered into the sea to row to safety. At 1.55am, both men worked frantically, assisting women and young children into lifeboat 4. They were one of the last lifeboats to launch, as John had spent so long unlocking the gates of the lower decks. Before they launched, however, a fight broke out between John and the passengers. Not only was the lifeboat late launching due to John's diligence for other human life, but when he did get to the lifeboat, he waited until the poor reached him, and he loaded them too onto the boat, much to the anger of the rich who had paid for a spot on it. The rich gave out to him, saying that the extra people would drown the lifeboat. John threatened them back, saying that anyone who doesn't want to push over is more than welcome to give up their seat entirely and take their chances in the freezing water. When there was no room left, John grabbed Sam by the collar and threw him onto the boat too. There were now over 50 people jammed onto this one lifeboat. He said he would have to stay and push people back who were trying to jump in from the top. Sam watched as John began lowering the boat, then turning back to the crowd with his fist raised, shouting, We can't all live. Give them a chance. The boat tipped into the water, and Sam began rowing as fast as he could away from the sinking ship, which was starting to drag others into the sea's belly. As they began to row away, they saw the boat begin to tilt into the air and lower into the water. They watched as people began to drop into the sea as they tried to fight gravity. Sam looked back to where John had been standing. He could see him gripping onto the railings and dangling. He watched as John pulled himself upwards to where the opening for where the lifeboat had been. He watched as his friend blessed himself, took a deep breath and then launched himself into the ocean. Immediately, Sam began to turn the lifeboat and tried to row back to where John had jumped in. The passengers on the lifeboat pleaded with him not to go back, as they were afraid that they would be overrun by the others trying to live and that their weight would tip them over. As Sam argued with them, they saw the ship split in two, with the visible part crashing into the ocean. He shouted at them, he didn't let you die, why should you let him? Sam started to row back and spotted a lone body floating in the water. He recognised the staff coat and went over to it. Growing up in Yall, John had an advantage that most of the others didn't have. He had learned how to swim. He had frantically swam over 200 yards away from the sinking ship and was now floating, awaiting his death in the freezing Atlantic Ocean. Is that you, Foley? Sam shouted. Can you hear me? I can't swim anymore. The cold has got me, John shouted back. Sam paddled over and with the women on the boat, they pulled John on board. 
He took a moment to recover and then told Sam that they must paddle, as he was afraid that they were going to be pulled down too. Frozen and weak, he rowed as hard as he could to get away from the whirlpool and suction caused by the sinking boat that went down at 2.20am. After they were far enough away to be safe, they waited in the dark and cold as a silence replaced the screams of help that had been coming from the freezing water. They were eventually picked out of the ocean and John arrived in New York on the 18th of April aboard the Carpathian. When asked if he would like anything, he simply responded, I want to go home to Mary, please. He did eventually get home, but his days at sea were not yet over. He returned home and signed on to the Oceanic on the 10th of July 1912, but failed to join the ship when it sailed, and more importantly, he wasn't on it when it sank in 1914. John Foley continued to live in Southampton with his family, and he continued working at sea, later serving aboard the Majestic. In 1922, his world was shattered by the death of his dear wife Mary. John himself continued to live in Southampton and passed away on the 18th of September 1934, following a stroke. He was buried in an unmarked grave at Hollybrook Cemetery, Southampton. His estate, worth £180, 14 shillings and 5 pence, was left to his unmarried daughter Mary. Today a plaque stands near his home in Yall marking his bravery on the night the Titanic sank. Up until this went up, very few knew his story. Today's music was written, produced and performed by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. John's story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you enjoyed this story and want to support the podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash We The Irish. We The Irish is an Ireland Loves production. Ryan is Anam Dunn. Gaurav Mahagud. Slán